I just didn't believe that it was going to be very long before she contacted me. And the sadness increased really gradually. So I would describe it like almost walking into the ocean from a beach. So you start ankle deep and you're a little bit like, mm, this is uncomfortable. Then another couple of weeks go by and you find yourself knee deep and you're still able to function, but you're a little bit more sad. And then suddenly you're waist deep. This is starting to affect you now because you're starting to withdraw. You're starting to not be able to concentrate at work. And then I'd say, I don't know, a couple of months and I'm feeling like I'm up to my chest. And it wasn't long after that before, you know, it's almost like head underwater. And really then you've got no capacity for anything else the part of my body that's out of my out of the water is my ability to cope with other things in life and I was just completely underwater if you like and I had no capacity for anything because this need to see my daughter and this need to have the relationship that I've always had with her and that I wasn't able to do anything about that and all control over it had gone Welcome ladies and gentlemen, I'm your host Matt Brown and you're listening to the Everyl Podcast. Each episode we'll have a different guest come on and talk about when life hands you an L, is it really a loss or is it something else? Because not every L's a loss. So sit back, relax or do whatever you guys do to get comfortable as we get into this. Let's go! Welcome to another episode of Every Year Podcast, where we have different guests come on and talk about real life situations that they have experienced and how they navigated those challenging times. Now, I would like to believe all of us have gone through a, a lot of high points where we were just so high on happiness, smiling from ear to ear like a Cheshire cat, and life was just looking good. It was in 8K supervision. And then there's been times where it just feels bleak, nothing's going right, you can't grab nothing no more, you're suddenly clumsy, you're knocking your feet, you're stumping your hands, whatever. And those times can feel a lot worse than that because you can't see a way out of it. You just see that the darkness is now your reality and you cannot see beyond it. And it can be quite discouraging especially when you're going through it on your own and I'm not trying to belittle anyone's situation but some situations can seem bigger than others if it's important to you it's important to me because I care about you and I want you to know that it's okay to feel what you're feeling but just know that your right now is not your forever and my fantastic guests come on and share their stories their truths not to tell you what to do but just to get you know what they've been through and how they navigated those situations so I hope you guys get comfortable enjoy the conversation as I have a fantastic guest and that's so cliche because I say it on pretty much every episode but I'll keep it real with you I'm not gonna have a guest come on here who I'm not feeling like that because selfishly, I've got to enjoy the conversation and then I want to make sure you guys get value out of it. So I have a fantastic guy here who I met at a dad function uh, a few months ago and his sheer passion just kept pouring out of his skin, out of his being. It was just, wow, he's just all about life and positivity. And it's like, break me off a piece of that. Like, go get me a cup of tea, break me off a piece of that, and I'm sitting there, dunking it in there, and just soaking it up. It was just lush. And 
seeing parts of his journey, what he does at work. He is just so proactive. He is a voice for people that lack a voice. He is mindful and aware. And it's just people like him need to be appreciated because a lot of the time people are out here doing the most and we take it for granted saying, yeah, but they're all right. But do you check in on them? Do you check up on them? Do you ever give them encouragement to just let them know that, yo, I know you're mad busy, but I just want to say, I appreciate you. I appreciate what you do because it might be a lot of whatever you're sacrificing to make this happen, whether it be finances, your time or all of it. So though these things I really appreciate him for, and I want to give him his flowers here and now because I feel it's appropriate to give people their flowers while they're living rather than their tombstone. That is where I'm at in my life. So I'm honoured and I'm happy to have Tim here with me. I'm now going to ask Tim if he doesn't mind introducing himself in a way he feels comfortable before we start talking about his first L. Hey Tim, how you doing? Hey Matt, yeah, no, thanks for having me on and yeah, I really appreciate everything you've just said and do you know what? I feel very, very similar to uh, about you, to be honest. And when we went to when I went to that event, just the the way you had an open set of arms for a group of men that were vulnerable or that, that, that maybe didn't feel willing to be vulnerable at the start of the day, but certainly did by the end of the day. That whole day touched me a lot. And some of the things we did that day and some of the conversations we had um were were extremely powerful and it's something that i think you come away from an event like that and you you think i've definitely changed at least one person's life today and that that is hugely powerful and that's a massive theme for me of 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 where i come from and what i've been doing to try and help men i guess cuz men generally and it's a bit of a stereotype but generally struggle to open up and and definitely dads as well so you know first thing I would say about myself is I am a dad so that's I've been a dad for nearly 15 years now my my dad's story starts with a premature birth so she was two months premature I had two weeks paternity leave um (laughs) So she's in hospital. Um, I'm going into the office and I'm going up there on a lunch break to get a picture or she's in an incubator. And I think on reflection, I probably had maybe five or six, seven years of PTSD, I think, following that, because you're just expected as a man to get on with it, chin up, wear a smile, get on with your day job. And, you know, and I really, looking back, didn't feel comfortable leaving her, leaving my daughter at the start. I would have rather had a much bigger chunk of time. Um, but thankfully, the, the the medical system and the NHS looked after her and she came out. She had asthma for a few years. She had laser eye surgery when she was tiny to get her to make sure she didn't go blind, but that was successful. She wears glasses now. And she's now a, a gymnast. So she does she can do backflips and cheerleading and things like that. So she's a really healthy young, call her a young woman now, nearly 15. Um, and she was she was a daddy's girl for first 10, 11 years of her life. Um, and I guess the main L, if you like, that the loss that I want to describe is a period of time when she stopped wanting to see me. And that lasted for about a year and a half. And that 
broke me as a man, I have to say, and put me pretty much in the lowest place I've ever been. Um, re- real, real depression. You don't really understand what depression is until you experience it. It's a bit like the difference between a migraine and a headache. You know, you've got a really bad headache. You think you've got a migraine and then you actually get a migraine and you realize you didn't have a migraine before. Depression is the same. You know, you feel a bit sad. You can feel quite sad. And then when you actually get depression and you cannot pull yourself out of it and you're paralyzed and, you know, you can't do your day job and you, you're frozen in your house and you cannot socialize with people, you cannot put yourself in the company of other people. It's like a downward spiral and it's isolating and you're powerless, especially with your with your children if they don't want to see you. And, um, you know, she lived with her mum, so separated, divorced. Um, that the, the vibe from her mum's house was not helpful to my situation so she didn't get the encouragement she needed that side to come and open up to me and speak to me and let me back into her life and you know um the only the only way I came out of that period of depression was to connect with everyone and I mean alpha males my friends that were alpha males football friends speak to them one-on-one I got a real pleasant surprise that they actually were really empathetic to my situation and they would listen they would allow me to talk and once I did it once just became habit and it actually became like my it became like my paracetamol my 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 medicine for if I was starting to feel low it was I can talk to people. It's okay to do that. And it doesn't matter if they're a colleague sat next to me at work and they say, how are you today, Tim? And it's okay actually to give the, the honest answer if you're not okay that particular day. Um, colleagues, clients, clients at work as well. They were, they, you know, it doesn't matter who they are, whether they're paying me for a service because they're a client, whether they're a colleague sat next to me, whether they're a man on a bus or a woman on a train or stood next to someone in a queue at a shop, anyone, (laughs) and um, it doesn't matter. And that's how I learned to look after myself. Um, Lots of other things as well, like find ways to be okay when I'm on my own. So find interest, maybe read a book, maybe maybe go for a walk, maybe, I don't don't know what it is. Um, All these things and these skills I build up, by really being thrown into the deep end of this loss of not not having my daughter around for so long and I managed to it took me about a year and a half I managed to pull myself out of it and become finally at the age of 40 um, really kind of comfortable in myself and and I realized that for the first 37 38 years of my life looking back I really wasn't I was far too reliant on the affection or the something else that someone might give me, whether that's the partner that I'm with or adoration of someone. And I think it's no way to live. It's nice when you get those things, but it's no way to live being reliant on a, on that sort of thing. You need to learn. You need to learn to look after yourself and, and be okay, no matter how you are. And yeah, and as I say, as a man. For me, the the bit the biggest differential is real real connection. So, um, so yeah, that's that's I guess I guess a potted history of where I've been and where I am. 
It sounds hard. Sounds hard. A lot, uh, an emotional roller coaster, and even such a small sample size of what you've explained. So I appreciate you sharing that. If it's all right, if you go in a little bit more detail around some of the st- aspects of it. So, folks, those of you that are listening, Tim had sort of given me a heads up about what he wanted to speak about. And it wasn't me prompting him, it was just him saying what he wanted to speak about. You know, when you hear loss of contact of your child, that can be interpreted in so many different ways. It could be like you've done something or depending on the dynamics of your household, it could be someone's turned them on you or a whole heap of things could have happened. Oh, this depending on the age of the child as well. They might be of an age where they want to get with someone and they think you're against them and they just rebel. Or Again, there's a number of different variables that could come to that situation where you have loss of contact. Because for those that don't know, I haven't spoken to my dad since 2009. He's never met my children. If I can help it, he won't meet my children just because of how he carries himself is not something I can justify for my children to be exposed to. That's me and my that's me and my story. You and your story, I'm assuming, can be very different. Can we go back? I just want to touch on it briefly about you saying she'd been premature by two months because I had a son. Um, for those that don't know, I have twins as well as my firstborn. And and the fun fact for everyone that doesn't know, if you have multiple children and they and the first one is born the second one will automatically start breathing so for two minutes my son was breathing amniotic fluid so he had to go to NICU for eight days those eight days were not pleasant at all because I had to juggle between three sets of three people my well four people really but my eldest who's at home with my mum then I had my youngest who was in NICU then I had the mum and the daughter who was in just hospital area and that was a lot (laughs) it was strenuous and that was with me having four weeks off work and I was begrudging that eight days of that I had to contend with Niku you got two weeks off work and your daughter was two months premature I can only imagine how you coped with that could you shed some light on how how did you feel and what did that look like? Yeah, I mean, it's a long time ago now, but um, I'm reflecting on it now in this day and age post-pandemic where people can work flexibly around their jobs a lot more. Um, back in those days, you had to be at the desk in the office to do it. And also back in those days, it was a very stereotypical traditional family setup, I guess, where dad works and mum stays at home, not, notwithstanding the fact that mum was recovering in hospital from a cesare- an emergency caesarean. But, you know, it wasn't, we're seeing great progression in the, the, the amount of support that dads get these days. And I, it just wasn't there. So it didn't ha- I didn't have people, even medical professionals checking in really on how I was. It was almost like an assumption, you know, dad's going to look after everybody else so I did feel that that weight on my shoulders to to the extent where I you know put everyone else first really my daughter my wife at the time she was incapacitated because she'd had the cesarean and I I was the only one therefore able to go and see my daughter in the incubator and I took videos on the laptop and then went and put the laptop at the end of the bed so she could see see Ashley my daughter is called Ashley and um she was really pleased to see that and then you know then it's time for me to leave the hospital I've got to go visiting hours are over and off 
off I goes, you know, to home. Um, yeah, and it was just a really intense, intense period of time. And you're worried, is my daughter breathing okay? Is she growing at the rate she should be? And those thoughts are constant. And therefore, it makes it quite difficult to function in your day job. But you, you, you're, you're very much expected back in those days to be stiff upper lip. So, you know, grin and get on with it. That's probably the main reason why I slipped into a kind of period of adrenaline for, for years of just need to get through every day and then sleep <laughs> and then get through another day and then sleep and then get through another day and then sleep. Um, the other thing I did at the time when I knew she was before she was born is I decided to start taking the exams to qualify as an actuary. So there's about 15 exams to do and people take five to six years on average to qualify. And I only started doing those exams when I knew she was coming. So I went into kind of typical dad need to provide kind of that was my instinct. I need to provide. I need to get qualified and earn the extra money. And and those exams are intense when you're working full time and you have no children. So to have a brand new baby that was two months premature and a full time job and then be studying on top. I actually sat my first exam two days before she happened to be born. So that was lucky in a way. I'd done the exam a couple of days before rather than the exam being the next day. Um, so it was a lot of weight, I think, to to carry. And as I said, I'm probably looking back running on adrenaline rather than really genuinely being able to take a breath and feel supported for quite a few years. Yeah, that's a lot. And was you able to then perform to the level that was required during that time? I was able to scrape through. So other people in my uh, place of work would be going through a promotion process and looking at the next promotion, perhaps every couple of years or something. I would definitely be taking two to three times as long as everybody else to think about having the energy to go to the next level. So there's so something called a motherhood penalty, which says that women, and it exists, that says women take longer time to progress in their careers because they've had children and it takes a toll in terms of time out of work and mentally, which is all valid. But I think what is not recognized is the fact that this takes a toll on dads too. So average qualification time was five to six years. I took 10 and a half years. And that was because I was determined to finish it, but the energy levels I had to get to the next level and get it done just meant that I passed these things at a slower pace and I didn't get promoted at the same rate. But here I am 17 years into the job and now promoted to the level that I would I would have always aspired to be. So I think my message to pe- to other people in the same situation would be, certainly if, if you're a man and a dad, try if you can to talk openly to someone at the start about how you're feeling, especially your work colleagues and your manager. Be open and honest about it. Um, and and just, just keep going. You know, like life doesn't have to be completed in the next year or even the year after. Um, you can go slow and steady. And it's absolutely fine for life to be hard for a little bit and things to slow down if you need to. Um, 
because if you if you pressurize yourself too much you'll 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 break like you know um didn't feel like if you want to describe a human like an elastic band i was more like a piece of string at the time you know like if you pull too hard you'll snap that, that sounds brutal so can i ask the dynamics in your house at the time you was in you was married at that time because i think i heard divorce was there mm-hmm. yeah so you was married brought this beautiful baby into the world yes two months early but all was well and good in the end a little bit mm. of asthma but i guess in in that instance and forgive me for making this assumption you'll take it <laughs> you know is that yeah, yeah what's wrong yeah. asthma it's cool it's cool that's cool give my baby I, <laughs> i'm happy with that yeah yeah so was home life pretty sweet was everything ticking along nicely and or was it that was part of the reason for why you lost um, communication or contact with your daughter? Well, um, divorce actually happened when my daughter was about seven years old. So separation and divorce was then. And if I'm honest, we got married for pregnancy, not for love. And, you know, I felt a response. She got, it was, actually it was an accident. Um, she wasn't planned didn't stop me loving her to the end of the universe from the minute I knew she was on her way but um because I was really instantaneously quite paternal and she like I said she was a daddy's girl for a long time but things were clearly not as you would want between a husband and wife with her mum because quite frankly you know we weren't really that compatible and we'd met young and we'd had a child and we hadn't really taken time to get to know each other properly before doing that so she just came home one day and said don't love you anymore and I said yeah me either and I was quite okay with that as two as two grown-ups in a relationship I was fine with that I knew we weren't compatible and we but the the reason the tears came at that point in time is because I knew the impact that two parents separating would have on my daughter it's not ideal for children and parents separate for good reasons you don't it's sometimes better for children I guess for two unhappy adults to just part ways and be happy elsewhere but it's certainly the ideal situation where they where they don't and they can reconcile and stay together and be okay and be and love each other long term and if you have a child together that wasn't the situation for us so and I was worried about Ashley when we separated but she was always, my daughter, she was always quite what I'd call an introverted personality. She would always be compliant, I guess, and smiley and, yes, daddy, okay, if I was asking her to do something. Um, and I guess that wasn't, for, for her, that's just the type of person she was, but didn't help her express herself and her feelings very well. And as I said earlier, I wasn't, really good at expressing my own feelings until the last couple of years so maybe I wasn't great at teaching her that either as a role model at the time um I met my my new partner uh now back in 2015 and we eventually moved in together in 2019 and Baron and Ashley's like getting on for 11 then and it wasn't very long sort of into 2020 before Ashley just stopped wanting to come to my house with my new fiance and her two her two children that if you talk about my daughter being an introverted character 
my my now wife and her two children are definitely extroverted. They wear their heart on their sleeves, talk about their feelings, and these are this is just a different personality type, right? It's t- totally okay, but it's not what Ashley, my my only child, daughter, introverted, shy, quiet daughter, was used to, and. She just, whilst I had her, you know, at least 50% of the time, all the time from the minute we separated, because I didn't want to lose, I wanted to be her dad. I wanted to look after her in every way there was possible. She just stopped wanting to come as frequently. And eventually she stopped wanting to come at all. say to other parents if I'm trying to explain it I say you know that point in your life where your child goes on maybe their first school trip and maybe the first day you're going yeah freedom um like we can go out tonight no they're out they're on a school trip and then like days two and three come and you're thinking oh, oh I wish I could see them now I'm kind of missing tucking them up into bed and that is that's exactly what it felt straight away when she stopped wanting to see me was the first week went by and it was like a school trip and it gets to Friday and then still no contact from her still not responding to me and then two weeks go by and you're now kind of thinking this is the longest period of time I've ever not seen her ever then that turns into three weeks then that turns into four weeks and I'm helpless, I can't, can't force her, I can't get near her, her mum's saying, you can't come near our house, for no good reason, No, no. and you know what it's like, society would assume if a man or a dad is being told, you can't come near a house, there must be something going on, he must have been violent or trouble or whatever, really it was just a disapproval of um, the way that I reacted to Ashley not wanting to come to my house which was to split up with my current wife and say I can't live somewhere where she doesn't want to go but then after about a month of moving out decide no I do love my current wife and go back and that's really when Ashley decided to disown me was when I went back to my wife and then months turn one month turned into two months and three months and four months and that's it that just that just finished me off in a way. I was like, right, I can't do anything now. I can't work. I've got to just continuously try to do something. And it turns into, if you're feeling low, it turns into criticism towards other people. So I'm I'm critical, like I'm really critical of Ashley's mum saying, you're alienating my daughter from me because you are putting a block on me coming near the house. You're not even letting me knock on the door to give her an Easter egg or a birthday card or whatever it is. And there's probably something in that, but I think fundamentally it just shows how mentally I was not okay. And yeah, and that's, that's, I guess I'm talking to now I've entered in depression, real depression, and I'm clutching at straws every day about what I can do to make inroads with my daughter until, as I said at the, beginning I learned to look after myself and realize that in the absence of anything else what you can control is how you look after yourself how you talk to other people whatever it is you do to look after yourself in my case it would be a lot of exercise and gym work and 
getting some natural indoor themes into me. It then led me to be able to give love, I guess, to my daughter without any expectation to receive anything back. So I could, I constantly wrote to her. I wrote to her in the post a letter once a week, every week for a year and a half. She got like, it was like Hogwarts in the Harry Potter films. When the letter is coming through the thing, I just carried on and I didn't get a response for a year and a half. But I did not stop and there was nothing that was going to stop me telling my daughter how much I loved her and I wanted to be her dad the whole time and eventually just Christmas just gone eventually she finally agreed to see me and it was the 2nd of January this year we met up and I saw her for the first time in a year and a half I just stood there and looked at her opened my arms and she came straight over and she came in for a hug and she had a little tear running down her face and I just that that feeling right in that moment was and then she backed away and she came in for another hug it was like rang two within 10 seconds and then we go for a walk and we're talking and the best thing I ever that I did at that point in time was be really honest with her about my own feelings because she was old enough then she's 14 she can hear she can hear a little bit about how I feel as an adult at that time and I trusted her with that and she really really did appreciate that she felt like she wanted to be treated like a like a grown-up and she wanted me to be honest and by me being honest with her then she voluntarily was a lot more honest with me and, and she started being open with me as well and we've built that trust now. And it's been at least once a week, every week this year that I've connected with her and seen her. So That's beautiful. I'm so happy to hear. At the time when you was going through it, though, where, you know, she's gone on a school trip, she's gone. And you're happy, as most people would, because I love my family. But sometimes I just need a day not to be a parent. Just, just, just a, a few hours is all I'm asking for, really. But when that suddenly's taken away from you, I can imagine it feeling some sort of way. I'm trying to, how do I put this? So you, so that happened and all of a sudden the communication just ceased. What was the communication like prior to her going away? Well, that's a good question. So before that, although she was not living with me anymore and she wouldn't come to my house, she would do things like ring me up when she's walking home from school back to her mum's. So it might take her 15, 20 minutes to walk home from school and she'd just ring me and like, I'd say, hey, Ashley, and she'd say, hey, just wanted to ring you and have a chat and tell you about my day. This and that happened today with this friend or that friend. And that's the relationship we had right up, you know, full trust. She was wanting to contact me and it was almost overnight. It went from that to nothing. And, you know, when she was younger, I was the standard kind of dad climbing frame, you know, I'd thrown her around and <laughs> When we go swimming, like she absolutely loved being launched around in a swimming pool. All the kind of typical, typical kind of play, playful dad made her laugh a lot. Like I could make her laugh more than anyone. So that's what it was like right up until the point where she stopped wanting to see me. So from her being, yeah, 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 yeah. I want to talk to daddy at any spare minute I have. So going cold turkey. How did you cope with that? Because I know you mentioned you you found yourself in a place uh, in depression later on, Mm. but 
how was the feeling immediately? Because I'm, I'm mindful. I've had depression back in 2013. Horrible, horrible feeling. No motivation. Everything was black and white. There was no color. It was just, you ask yourself why. And I didn't have a reason to, to come back to. It was just meh. I, I couldn't be asked to eat. I couldn't be asked to do a lot of things. Mm. It sounds completely stupid for people that don't have cats or understand, but if if it wasn't for my cats, I'd probably still be in depression now because they would, he just mm-hmm. knew that I wasn't a hundred percent and would come over and just comfort me. And then he had, cause he's a house cat, he's cat literally changing and he's got an annoying habit where he won't cover it, come over to me and look me in the face, knowing I can smell it. And I've got to get out of bed and go change it. So, it sounds completely bizarre, but things like that were my reason for getting out. My wife had a hard time because she's working and trying to talk to me, but I'm not engaging. Yeah. Really, really horrible time. So I kind of understand when people say they've been through depression. And I say kind of because I'm not going to say what I went through in terms of depression is the same as what you or anyone else went through. But I'd like to think some of it does overlap. Mm. How did you go from, cool, talking to my door every day on a regular to, why is there a tumbleweed passing through here? Like, what, what, what's that all about? Yeah. And then you have to cope with it because I'm assuming you're still working, you're still loved up with your wife. Mm. But then if that's playing in the back of your mind, how you mm-hmm. then apply yourself to your relationship is somewhat not the same because you're distracted by the fact, why is my child getting back to me? What's happened? Yeah. What's changed? Yeah. yeah, no. Um, Do you know what? I think at the start, so for the first two, three, four, five weeks, I'm deeply sad, but I'm almost in disbelief. So I'm not believing that she, this is forever. I'm not believing this, this is for a long period of time because of the relationship I've got with my daughter. And I know, and I trust it because it's so long. Um, I just didn't believe that it was going to be very long before she contacted me. And the, the sadness increased really gradually. So I, I would describe it like almost walking into the ocean from a beach. So you start ankle deep and you're a little bit like, mm, this is uncomfortable. Then another couple of weeks go by and you find yourself knee deep <laughs> and you're still able to, you're still able to function, but you're a little bit more, you're a little bit more sad. And then suddenly you're waist deep. This is starting to affect you now because you, you're starting to do the things that I described at the start. You're starting to withdraw. You're starting to not be able to concentrate at work. And then I'd say, I don't know, a month, a month, a couple of months, and I'm feeling like I'm up to my chest. And it wasn't long after that before, you know, it's almost like head underwater. And really then you've got no capacity for anything else. So I guess I'm describing my body. The, the part of my body that's out of my out of the water is my ability to cope with other things in life. And it was like a gradual thing like that until until that has just dripped away, um, and I was just completely underwater, if you like, and I had no capacity for anything because this need to see my daughter and this need to have the relationship that I've always had with her and the the love I have for her and the need to look after her was I wasn't able to do anything about that and all control over it had gone um and you you, I guess you would feel out of control in the ocean underneath the water if you couldn't get up to the surface 
the best way I can explain it. You said that you were sad. Some people are functional mm. and don't necessarily show depression in terms of sadness, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, Some yeah. people are able to be the life of a party and still be yes. the life giver, so to speak. Mm. But when they go home, they just don't have any energy for themselves. They have it, they have it for others, just not for themselves. Did that happen with you or was it just sadness was part of your journey? Sadness was the start of it. And there's like the difference between the headache and the migraine I, I, took, I spoke about at the beginning. It turned into the migraine situation, which did make me visibly depressed. So if I was if I was a colleague, you'd know because I was off work and my, my friends would stop seeing me. So it was visible then. It was a few months that I was off work and then I started a phased return. So came back and did a couple of hours a day or something. So I guess at that point in time, people are seeing me what looks like functioning for a couple of couple of hours a day. But what they don't see is what's going on inside, which is really the same as it was a few weeks ago. I'm just maybe feeling like I need to force myself to get going again for the reasons why at times I didn't commit suicide and thinking of my daughter and she she, she's obviously the reason I was feeling or the loss of seeing her was the reason I was feeling the way I was feeling but she was also the reason that I was motivated to recover myself to look to, to do to do something to recover so I'd say there was a long period of time maybe after the three months of depression where I was phased return and coming back to like maybe close to full-time hours of work and starting to go to watch my favourite football team again, Bristol City, watch them, starting to go out and be around people willingly, but I'm there in body and I'm not really there in mind still. So they might then see me functioning and walking around and talking, but really I'm staring into space half the time and I might not really pick up on anything anyone's saying. People are talking to me. And I'd ask them to repeat two minutes worth of discussion because I didn't pick up any of it. My brain is still somewhere else. I'm still not functioning. I'm still not engaged with who I'm with. I'm not in. I'm not focusing on what I'm doing, whether that's work or friends or whatever it is. And then I think it probably was maybe a year of that of that kind of state of being. And I'm trying to practice all the good things that that I've taught myself in terms of connecting with other men. And actually, I'll tell you now, best thing I did was at work, an opportunity came up to become chair of the dad's group at work. And chairing the dad's group at work is part of like a parents and carers network in our company. Chairing the dad's group at work meant that I had almost like a a project, I guess, where there's a safe space for dads to talk at work and suddenly I can share my story in there and the response in in this space was amazing, amazingly supportive and I'm having one-on-one conversation, video calls with people at work and suddenly, I, and, and I'm actually helping other dads. They're in similar situations or they've been through something else and I'm talking about my situation in this space and then they're talking about theirs which is different but I'm helping them and I thought, wow, this is helping me. Look at the amount of love that I've got for my daughter. And yes, I can channel that to my daughter by writing letters to her. 
but I can also channel channel that energy, that positive energy and that love to all the other dads at work. And that gave me a massive buzz. The group of dads at work started at about 50 people and within nine months, it grew to 100. I think we're currently standing at about 130 odd now. Dad's in there. It's still growing, it's growing, it's growing, it's growing. And that was just my my passion was then actually trying to teach other men and dads how to, if you're ever in this situation as a dad and you're feeling helpless and you're feeling useless or subpar as a parent, then it was almost normalizing that. And I'd say, you know, no parent's perfect. There is no such thing as a perfect parent. And it's okay to make mistakes, get things wrong, try something different. Um, then you shouldn't beat yourself up and look for perfection all the time. Just treat every day as the first day of the rest of your life as a parent and then look forward at what you can do positively. And that, that, that dad's, that was called dad's Aeon company. I work for Aeon. The dad's Aeon group was massive, massive part of my, um, my recovery. And then I started to be able to listen to conversations again. I started to be able to engage with people again. And through that, it just got me well practiced at connecting with everybody. And yeah, that is a game changer. It's a life changer. It's made me who I am today, which is someone who can now function even if he's sad because I've got these kind of like paracetamol type techniques. You know, I've got this medicine I can take, which is go and spend a bit of time on my own, take some deep breaths, talk to someone at the gym, go for a swim, whatever it is. I know how to... You've got your coping mechanisms. I've got my coping mechanisms and I'm well practiced at them because you can read the theory and you go through the, what you call them, um, like cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. And they give you the strategies, but it really takes time and practice to get that right for yourself. That's what the dad's group gave me. So it's nice to hear that you had the courage. I say courage because not everyone feels comfortable disclosing their vulnerability to people because they sometimes see it as a weakness. But you had the the proper support around you. You may not have known that they were going to react the way they did so positively, but you took a punt and Mm. tried it. And it was nice that it was reciprocated in terms of they appreciated you, they shared love to you and just kept... and you know pulled you out of a place that you didn't want to reside in in regards to all of that did your depression hinder your relationship with your wife yes absolutely and and I'll explain this the best way I can and it was it was a brilliant thing that we learned at the football at the event that we I I was at with you yep and we did a, a little exercise at that event where we talked about a five-a-side football team. And we got into pairs and we said to each other, who is our five-a-side team in terms of our support network? And I reflected on that and said to the guy next to me, actually, do you know what? Go back a couple of years when I was in this horrible place. I couldn't feel my team. So I had my, I had my mum in goal. Yeah. 
and my wife as maybe one of the defenders. I had nothing else in my team, right? So it hinders your relationship because all your eggs are in the same basket. So if my wife is having a full and happy social life and a full and happy, you know, independent life of her own, you you very easily become critical of them for having other things because you've only got them. Yeah. And it's, it leads you to say and say things to them like, why are you going out again? When are you going to plan something for us? We never spend any time together. All those sorts of things which are critical of your partner that really come from a weakness inside of you because you've got no one else on your team that yeah. when they're busy doing their thing, if you had your team full up, you'd be able to quite easily feel and, and you know get your need for connection met from somewhere else. Yeah. If we're going to use football analogies, effectively, you need squad depth. You don't need just a paper-thin team. Yeah. You need to say, right, if I need to sub someone off, then I can sub them off because they're busy or they're unavailable. There we go. They're unavailable. Yeah. Let me swap them out, put someone else in it. But if you're saying, I've just got this one person that does all of it, you've got no sick mm. days, you've got no injuries you're allowed to mm-hmm. have. It's a matter of, if you go... I ain't got nothing. I guess I guess you've got to put it that way. It's a bit like when one team's relying on one person to score goals and no one else in the team's yeah. chipping in. It's like, if that person goes down, we're screwed. <laughs> we are screwed. screwed. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's it's really destructive to a relationship. So I would encourage people to that are listening to this, if, you, if this resonates with you at all, um... Have a think about how much of your own happiness you're putting on to someone else, on one individual, because it's it's undue pressure on them and it isn't helpful for relationships. And at the time, obviously, when I lost my daughter and I didn't have my five-a-side team either, it really left, left me with not much left. And that does sound a bit hard, knowing that you were left in that situation. I'll ask you this. Mm. If originally it felt like an L going through that where you're having full blown conversations every day with your daughter, you know, you guys are inseparable. All of a sudden that just stops, goes cold turkey. You've gone through the wars. You've gone through a, a, a very negative and very crippling state of mind. You found a new support network or one that existed, but you just wasn't aware they were there in that capacity. You've now come out the other side. What would you call it if not an L? For me, it was um, it was clarity. It was it was clarity in my own mind, um, which is not an L. Um, I think and one it, one L actually that it, I would describe it as is is love, and that sounds a bit corny, but I think it's really important to have love for yourself. Um, and I was only really physically able to do that or mentally able to do that afterwards. Um, I, you know, I'm 40 now, as I said, first 38 years of my life, I don't feel like I really love myself. Um, And I learned how to do that through that recovery and through those connections and through having subs on the bench. And (laughs) um, yeah, it's, yeah, that's what I would say. That's good to hear. So, yeah. If you could go back in time, 
Nothing you do in the t- in the past is going to impact how your current day is. So don't worry about messing anything up, stamping on any bugs or anything like that. You're good. But if you could go back in time and talk to your younger self, just prior mm-hmm. to when, like when you was about to go really deep in and, you know, in your mm-hmm. worst state, what would you tell yourself mm-hmm. to help pull you out of it before you venture down that rabbit hole that takes you to a very dark place? Be brave and send a text message to a friend and say, can we meet for a coffee, please? Do you think- I didn't have that skill. My wife, my now wife, once said to me, Tim, when was the last time you did something with your friends that wasn't to do with football? And it was a really poignant thing that she said to me because the only time I would see them was at pre-arranged times in the week when it was football training or football matches and you turn up and there's a bit of banter in the training room, but no one's really connecting one-on-one and you play the, you play the game and then you have a beer and then you go home again. Um, but so the advice to my younger self would be actually don't wait for Saturday or Tuesday night for training. If you want to connect with your friends, send a text to someone that you know as your friend and say, shall we meet for a coffee? Shall we meet for a beer? Do you fancy grabbing a lunch on Saturday or let's go for a breakfast and just go and just go and talk and just say, just open in line, you know, how are you? How's the family and how's things going? And you get people want to open up to you if you ask those questions and you're free to open up yourself. That's, that would be my main advice to my, to my younger self is make, you know, real connections on an individual level with your friends. Interesting. Do you think your younger version of yourself would have received that information and acted on it? No, no, I don't. And I can't explain why. I was never the popular kid at school. I was maybe the butt of people's jokes. I was quite academic. So the the things that people were expecting of me when I was younger was to get good grades at school. It wasn't to be the one organizing the tr- organizing the the meet up down the park to play football. You know, Timmy Tagalong. That's an unfortunate name. Yeah, it's an unfortunate name. Yeah, and it it did get used at times, but I mean, it's quite a it's quite an in, it sounds funny, and it is funny looking back. But you know, Timmy Tagalong is he comes when he's invited, and he stands and he listens, and he's in the background, and then he, someone might take the mick 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 out of him. But who's maybe maybe it's that kind of um, upbringing, if you like. When, you, when you're younger that then leaves you with not not a lot of confidence to connect with people because you never had it in the first place you were never the ringleader you were never the one being proactive being proactive in organizing things with friends so yeah my younger self probably would have felt even even to the extent of two or three years ago don't know how to do that never done that so how would it be best that you present that information to your younger self in order for you to act on it? I think it's much like my wife said to me at the time when I said, I don't, I don't just text people. I can't really just text people saying, can we? And she said, yes, you can. <laughs> you can text people. I can think of a million things that I would try to say to my younger self, but I, I really believe that I wouldn't have had the foresight or the belief or the 
skill. I was always quite maybe maybe I find myself quite awkward at one on one. I didn't see myself as the fun guy, so I thought if I go and speak to someone, I'm probably going to bore them. We're going to end up talking about studies or maths or something. When actually, if I listen to my other friends talking, they got you know they got a bit about them. They got they got some ba- they got some banter and they got some they got some jokes to tell and they can make people laugh. And I don't think my younger self really believed that I had any skill for one on one entertaining someone else, and so that probably put me off doing it. And I don't know what I could have said to myself. So do you think it's in a case of not necessarily what you could say to your younger self in terms of getting them to actually do it, but it's more showing them how to do it and to just encourage, further encourage them? Yeah, I think so. I know you're going to feel I'm completely off my head here. I promise you I'm not been sniffing any fumes, but just drop a text and just wait and just go. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And if I was my older self now talking to my friends at the time, not my younger self, I would say to them, text Timmy and say, shall we meet up? Shall we, you know, check in with Timmy as a, as a one-on-one. And one of the things, actually, I have a real, I have a close friend when I was going through that recent depressive period that would just send me, occasionally, it might be a two three weeks apart and he might just send me a little text and it'll just say just checking in are you all right and sometimes I wouldn't respond but the feeling that I got from that little just checking in so yeah my advice would be to my younger self but it would also be to the friends of my younger self um, to make it a two-way street I appreciate that and the reason I like asking that question is just because you know yourself better than anybody else knows you and you going back knowing now or not yeah knowing then what you know now could potentially be very helpful mm. but i'm mindful that we might know mm. people who are in a situation very similar to what you've explained but we might say right i know the right yeah. answer cool but is it the right time and is it the right delivery to be able to communicate that. Yeah. And I think some of us have been guilty, depending on what work you, I, I would like to overly generalize and just say, all of us had an experience where we know exactly what the answer is, but we've mm. delivered it and it was not the right time, place or, or, or medium to present that information. And it just didn't get received the way it yeah. should have been. So by speaking to people that have been through those situations to ask them, what would you say to yourself? I would say this. Would you hear it? <laughs> nah. Okay. How can I say that? Mm-hmm. Because I want to make sure that if anyone's listening to this, including myself, how can I say things to a younger version? Um, how can I say this to someone else who's going through this and make sure that mm-hmm. I can actually be supportive and not come across judgmental or forceful or yeah. uninviting or negative or all these negative things that I could potentially be. I do not want to intimidate anybody. I want to help encourage you i want to listen to you i want to acknowledge you i want you to feel seen feel heard feel loved feel that you're allowed to express yourself in any way that you see fit and that's okay but i can't do that Mm. if i'm not listening and taking heed to what someone else has been through and now i've identified someone else going through it who i love and apply what i've learned yeah yeah and um Actually, listening to you say that, I think 
my older, my now self talking to my younger self could maybe take some time to ask questions of my younger self about how I really feel and just reassure, you know, almost before I, before you answer this question, I want you to know that there is no wrong answer and, and, and you can, you can say anything. It does not matter. And your, your most inner feelings are really important to me because I don't want you to feel like you have to keep those locked away. So in the presence of the two of us just now, right now, can you just maybe describe to me what it is that you're scared of and what's, what's stopping you from connecting with your friends and what's stopping you with being proactive about organizing something and what, what it is. And maybe if I was able to, as my younger self, explain it to my older self, I might then be able to think about trying to trying to help myself and trying to trying to trying to practice practice doing it. Maybe does that make any sense? I don't know yeah. if that made any sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah, um, because ultimately, you just got to. Sometimes you just got to try, and then once you try it, you then refine it, and then you just. It's like walking. Mm. You, you know, all, all of us. Well, both of us are both parents. We we've seen our children try to walk, mm-hmm. and they tried. They failed. They kept going. They kept going, and they refined it, and they found their own way of doing it. Just like us, if we fall down, we get back up, mm. and we just keep going. Because if I think about it, there's so many times where I haven't made any progress in terms of what I'm doing. Let's, I'm a very creative person, but that's because I'm too busy flittering back and forth between different ideas and concepts. I haven't settled on anything, worked on it, and then be able to look back and go, oh, I like this, I don't like that. Oh, my workflow could have been improved if I did it this way, I did it that way. But because I've not actually done any work, I've just thought about doing it and not actually mm. done the work, I'm never going to actually be able to get a real handle on it. I'm never going to be able to show I can do it and refine how well I can do it. So if you feel some sort of way and you're too busy saying, oh, I should go therapy. I should talk to these people. I should do this. I should do that. And you're not actually doing it. You're just entertaining the idea of it. And that's all it remains is an idea. You're never going to know how it is. You're saying, but I'm awkward when I talk. I'm awkward. Do you know what? Just go out there. If you say something stupid, so be it. Hopefully, I'd like you enough to know that that's a blip. That's not you as a person, and there'll be another conversation mm-hmm. had, so you can justify and say, "Yeah, that was a that was an idiot comment I made out of a thousand. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I'm not that guy. Mm-hmm. But it, it, you sometimes mm-hmm. you just got to put that foot forward and not try and win the war, so to speak, but just tackle every battle that you're faced with at that time as best you can, yeah. and just go for it. You've just given me another idea, which is what worked really well in the dad's group, actually, is, and I always say this, is you cannot tell someone to talk. You can't force someone to voluntarily talk about their feeling. What you can do is talk yourself. So maybe what my older self would do to my younger self is actually not take the focus off my younger self and just talk as my older self about how I truly feel so that my younger self can see, oh, Sort of that's how it's done. Oh, you, you're able to talk to me like that, and that might start um, almost spark something in my brain as a motivation to try myself and respond at that point in time. Which goes to the phrase of "Do something today, your future self will be grateful for." Yeah, and it's so hard to really believe that because ultimately, I say to people, if I gave you just share four hundred quid this time next year, would you take it? <laughs> 
how many people do you think say yes to that? A lot, right? I say save a pound a day. Save a pound a day. Mm. This time next year, you're going to have just under 400 quid. Tell me you say no mm-hmm. to that. Well, uh, 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 exactly. Do something today your future self will be grateful for. And all it just takes is that oh, first yeah. step to just go and do something different that's going to put you in a better place than you are today. You're The good yeah. thing about life, and this is where I'm at in a minute, if we lost weight as quick as we wanted to, built body mass as quick as we wanted to, we could easily keep yo-yoing because we've never gone through the process. When you have to go through the process of meal prep, having to be disciplined to do things mm. when the weather's not great, even when the weather is great and you're feeding yourself, you're looking half mm. decent now, but you still got a way to go. Because you're going through the process and you're embedding those disciplines, you then yeah. get to a point where even if you do or do not want to do something, you do it because it's now part of your being. You've trained your body. It's now mm. muscle memory. It's routine. Yes. And yes. that's where instant gratification can be a negative thing. And you need to say, and this is me thinking about what you said, talking to your younger self as you are now, that is mm. like, wow, you're that you're you're chairing this? You're going to these events? You mean people from all mm. over the country know my name? Mm. Yeah. How, how are you mm. this person? Mm. Mate, trust me. Mm pick up your phone, drop a text, that conversation you have, that's a start of where you are to where I'm going to be. And this is not where we're stopping. Yeah. Yeah. And do you know what? That is such a way, good, good way of putting it. And going back to the gym analogy, I, I did start training in the gym when I was about 30, but I did it the slow and steady route. So I didn't take any steroids. Yeah. I drank a protein shake occasionally, but I really sorted my diet out and I, I had no expectation for anything to happen for at least six to eight weeks. And even then it was just the first step on a longer term process. And it was three or four years until I really got quite happy with my body. And that was a good, uh, a good point, changing point in my turning point in my life. The other thing is that you sparked a thought in my mind just now is I watched something on Facebook the other day, which was just so powerful. And they described life like a cup of water so imagine a very small cup of water and the the water in the in the glass is all the good stuff in your life the water is goodness you get a spoonful of mud and you tip the spoonful of mud into the water and that is just sort of frustrating or bad things that happen in life what are you going to do are you going to get the spoon and try to spoon the mud out but by doing that what you're doing is you're taking with this every spoonful you're taking some of the good water out as well you're taking some of the goodness out so your glass is becoming emptier and emptier as you're trying your hardest to focus on getting rid of that bad stuff what would be better is get a two liter jug of water just pour it into that glass and you watch all the mud just overflow out of it and you're left with a clear glass of water again and the the moral of that story for me is baby steps like you just described is you have the power as a human to put a little bit of goodness back in every day no matter what's happened and for me putting a bit of goodness back in is having a conversation about how I'm feeling is taking a deep breath moving away from a screen and just putting the headphones on and listening to music is taking a drive 
put a little bit just you know just go and see some countryside um go to the gym do a workout do a swim sit in the sauna steam room more and more often than not so more goodness comes with that because there's other people around and i think that is where i'm at now is i've always got something to turn to to put a little bit more goodness in my jar rather than focus all my energy trying to spoon the mud Um, and that's where I was at. That's where I was at at the deepest depression is I was every day, all day, every day trying to spoon the mud out, which is not seeing my daughter. And I was sucking everything else out of me until my glass was empty. That's a very good way of putting it because you, you just look at it and you think, yeah, I I am just taking out the goodness as well as the bad stuff. But the worst thing about that analogy is that while you're taking the mud out, chances are when you go to tip it, the water's come out, but the mud's fallen back in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're definitely going to get another spoonful of mud at some point. And you're probably yeah. not going to have a two litre jug of water to pour in. You're probably going to have a five mil at a time, but the point still remains the same. And that could take oh, yeah, a long definitely. time for the, the, mud, the mud to disappear. But and that, and that's where for me it's a matter of you know your right now is not your forever yeah. and you have the ability to change it up a phrase i do often use is saying you can't apply a filter to your life like you can on instagram or snapchat yeah. but you can change your mindset yes and that will p- project you into a different realm if you know your why and you believe in your why you will overcome any how and okay. if it's a matter of, right, I've got this mud in here right now. It's, I, it's, I don't like it. You know, it's weighing me down. Cool. Mm. I don't care if I have to go to the furthest lake, which is the nearest one to me, ironically, two miles down the street. I want to go get a little cup and I'm going to pour it in because I know eventually that's going to get that out of me. But it's a process. Yeah. It's something that may not happen overnight, but eventually it become a discipline and that yes. will help me be the person I need to be because I've tried yeah. some stuff before. And I see where it's taking me to. Let me try something different so I get a different outcome. Absolutely. Um, one other way, I something I turn to quite often at the moment, just a thought, is you can describe, I think you can describe depression as worrying about the past. And anxiety is worrying about the future. So you're anxious because you think things might happen in the future and you're depressed because of things that have happened in the past and you're dwelling on the past or you're worried about the future. Contentment, as I see it, is staying in the present and in the right now and seeing the past as the past and seeing the future as a story you're telling yourself and you don't know what's going to happen because you're not there yet. And I've I learned... I have, and it's like text. You read these in, this in books, don't you? And you hear it on um, kind of self-help guides. And but learning how to put that into practice and live in the moment, in the now, is is a real skill that I've learned how to do. Um, I'll do it. I'll do it today because I'm feeling quite low today, if I'm honest. And after this podcast, I'm going to use that skill now to just think, right. I'm okay right now. <laughs> what can I do in the next five minutes? It's going to put some more positivity in my glass. I'll probably go and have a bath. I might just sit in a bath for a minute. That'd be quite nice. And then see how I feel after that. <laughs> Deal with that then. 
Sounds very positive. And I, I, I like the fact you're in this headspace now. Um, I'll ask this question real quick. Did you do therapy at all? Or was this something that you just did yourself and you had your peer support? I did therapy. I did the, I had access to free counselling from work. I phoned up that hotline as often as I want, 24 hours a day. I then did a more targeted course of cognitive behavioural therapy. Um, and all that stuff gave me a load of tools that I didn't really know how to use. I knew what the tools were in theory, but it only became well-practised probably from the point the dad's group started onwards when I started actually using it in practice. And this being present in the moment is something that just like if you were starting out at the gym and you wanted a perfect, whatever it was, chiseled body, and it ain't going to happen for quite a few weeks and months, you need to give, you need to have patience with cognitive behavioral therapy practices and mindset techniques because you don't get, you don't crack it overnight. It took me quite a long time. But you do get there with practice, I'm convinced. I'm not going to lie, I'm grateful for the fact that you did this. You took the necessary steps you felt you need to take to get to where you are. And regardless of how you felt, and even now, if you feel some sort of way by saying what you said, it's a massive testament to say how much you've grown, that you speak up, you embrace who you are, and yeah man no one no one on this earth is like you or gonna be like you and that's what makes you special so you have a unique set of skills i'm not going liam neeson way here but <laughs> you are definitely a unique human being who's making a positive impact on other people's lives and long may it continue oh thank you <laughs> you just did a heart sign with his fingers there you're so lovely there <laughs> what i'll ask you to do for the next couple of minutes please selfishly plug you what you got going on and yeah where people can find you if they want to chat and get to know more about the amazing tim okay well you can definitely find me on linkedin and i am really proud to say that i have spoken in parliament now twice about fatherhood the uh, the group of mps in the fatherhood group invited me in to, to do a presentation to them about the dad's group at work and so I'm hoping to have an impact on government in terms of support for fathers across the country. I want to do more work with Music Football Fatherhood in terms of sports events. I want to bring it out of London and come to the West Country. And I've, I'm trying to dig into that. So watch this space on that. In the insurance industry, I co-chair the Insurance Families Network, looking to make the insurance industry a more family-friendly place. So I've extended it industry-wide. I will shortly be in a book. An organization called Daddy Life contacted me. They've done lots of published, published lots of books, and they've got a great website with support for dads. And they want me to talk talk to them, do an interview that they can put in their book about dad, dads of daughters and my experience of that. Why, what else? Yeah, more podcasts. And I'm, I'm quite public with this stuff one other thing actually that i i am doing is again trying to work with the government is to solve the gender pensions gap so I'm, i work in pensions and the gender pensions gap is a bit like the gender pay gap on steroids so it's doubly as bad and it's caused by lots of things that make make the society we live in less accessible for dads as parents 
and and therefore less accessible for women in work so my my goal is to have a country that we live in where men and dads are supported as much as women and mums and that should not take anything away from supporting women and mums but it should increase the support for men and dads and I won't stop because it's a passion of mine and let's see how far we can take it and I love that I'm happy to help in whatever capacity I can so feel free to reach out yeah folks reach out to Tim he's definitely always on LinkedIn I can testify (laughs) for that but he does put out some solid content and he follows a few nice people and yeah when you when you meet like obviously from this conversation you know he's a solid guy when you go check him out and you get to engage with him you'll understand even more why he's that guy so I'm, i greatly appreciate you coming on sharing what you did i i know these conversations for a lot of people are very close to their heart very personal and they put it out there for other people to consume but i thank you and i really i really do believe that these conversations are going to help other people feel less alone and feel that yeah, they're feeling something, but whatever they're feeling, they may not want to explore it to an umpteenth degree. But the fact that you have articulated some of those things, some of those fears, some of those those intimidating feelings that you experience, that person then has a decision to make whether they explore, if they identify with them, or they just hide themselves away from it. But ultimately, you're not telling them what to do. You're just telling them, this is my truth. This is how I dealt with things. And this is what happened when it came out the other end. And it gives people, in my eyes, hope. Hope to know that there right now is not there forever. And true to form, as I always say, there's nothing about a caterpillar that takes going to be a butterfly. And you can take encouragement from that to know that your situation, no matter how bad it is, can look completely different in a blink of an eye. And if you really think it's really, really bad, just think of manure. That's the best type of fertilizer. So think what can sprout from that. So <laughs> I think I'm done with my analogies for now. But I, I, everyone, thank you very much for listening. Tim, thank you again for jumping on. And guys, girls, however you identify, please just take heed, take encouragement. Know that you're not alone. We all feel what we need to feel. And that's not a bad thing. Yes, we might react to it in a positive or negative way. But just embrace you, do you. And then when you can just settle down, take a deep breath and find yourself again and recalibrate, then go again. Because let's be fair, you can't stop a wave, but you can learn to surf. Enjoy yourself. Enjoy the rest of your day, whatever it is your baby doing. And I'll catch you in the next episode. Every L Podcast.